Hello and welcome to the Theology Meets Reality podcast, the podcast for people who seek to follow Christ in the midst of the messiness of life and parenting. We are Lisa and Greg Casimir, and we are not afraid to deviate from the norm of culture, even Christian culture, to make sure that we are applying what we believe about God to how we live. Welcome everyone to episode 13 of our podcast. We're so glad to have you listening. In this podcast and in the next two, we are going to be talking about the subject of how we got the Bible. We're going to talk about um, how the Bible came to be about from when it was originally written to the English Bibles that we have today. And we're going to get into that more in the main part of this episode, but we're going to start with our quote of the day. How are you doing, Greg? I'm good, thanks. Okay, our quote of the day is from Lilius Trotter, and her the quote is, measure thy life by loss and not by gain, not by the wine drunk, but by the wine poured forth. For love's strength standeth in love's sacrifice, and he who suffers most has most to give. Do you remember like when we watched that movie, the Lily Trotter movie? Yeah, and we also have a book on her. Yeah, we do. So Lily Trotter was um, an artist who basically like gave up her art to be a missionary in Algeria. This was in like the late 1800s, early 1900s. And um, it's a really cool story because it is a story of sacrifice. Like she sacrifices her art, um, like her art career. Yeah. And she ends up just being a single woman who's working on her own as missionary and honestly doesn't see like a lot of fruit while she's there. Yeah. Um, She was, she was on the cusp of being a very, uh, like prolific artist. Yeah. In, uh, in her time. Uh, and she felt called to be a missionary instead. And is she the one who was also like ministering to the people in and around where she lived at the time. In, yeah, yeah. To the poor people. Yeah. In, yeah, she's from the UK. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so we watched a movie about her. Um, the one we caught, it was called many beautiful things, right? Yes. Yeah. It was really good. I would recommend it. I think there are other movies about her. And then there's a book for children. That's really good too. Called Lily, the girl who could see. Um, and I'll put those in the show notes. But anyway, that's kind of, that was our introduction to her. And I think about her like fairly regularly in that she's somebody who gave and gave, like like we talked about in the quote, but I don't know that she saw a lot back yeah. in her lifetime. Um, plus like the description of her death is really, I think about that. It's very comforting. Yeah. Um. I won't even tell you what happened. You'll have to look up the story or watch the the movie. But And her story was almost lost, right? Like she was a relatively obscure unknown and then someone just happened across Yeah, you're right. a reference to her. I think in in the journals of the 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 gentleman who was trying to get her to become an artist. Yeah. And then that led her down the trail of finding out who she was and piecing back together the story of her life and how she went to Algeria and stuff. And then they, um, compiled all that and 
it's, it's an amazing story. Definitely worth reading or uh, watching the movie about her. Yeah, it was John Ruskin. Do you remember? He yes. was the, the man that you're talking about. It was on the tip of my tongue. Anyway, you probably have heard of him because he was a famous artist who stuck with art. And she she um, studied under him for a little while and then was a full-time missionary. Yeah. Anyway, I love that quote. The idea of being being poured out is more important than what we take in. Um, so what we're going to talk about, as I was saying, is how we got the Bible that we have today. Um, and this is something that like all this information I got is from what I learned in seminary. Um, and I have since taught a class or several classes in adult Sunday schools about how we got the Bible. And this is a topic that really excites me because I feel like it's so encouraging. It's so helpful to learn this information. Obviously you don't have to know it to follow God, but it's one of those things that should kind of like build up your faith and be encouraging. Um, and yeah, I just love to share it with people because we've kind of known, we, we have been given a wealth of knowledge in this area. I mean, especially like, I mean, I went to seminary for four years and Greg has like a, what do you call it when you're just like by proxy? Yeah. You're yeah, like, yeah, by proxy. Greg had a seminary education, like by <laughs> proxy. I mean, you really did like learn a lot of the stuff that I learned. Yeah. I kind of audited your studies. Yeah. yeah. And, um, it, it was such a benefit to learn this stuff. So like in the last season we talked about suffering and, and you, you can't pin down a specific answer to some of the questions of suffering, right? You can only, kind of like go through what you know right and then and be reassured that it's like there's a purpose behind it and stuff yeah exactly so it's like well we know god is good we know god is here we know god's promises but i can't tell you exactly why this specific thing is happening right but when we talk about the bible i think a lot of people don't realize how solid the ground is that we're standing on um and i always tell people like never be afraid to investigate anything relating to god whether it's the Bible or science, because all of science falls under God, or just like some some theology or something historical, like, because God is truth. Like you're never going to find something that's not true, right? Um, so don't be afraid to research it and investigate. I mean, obviously use like reliable sources, right? Right? Yeah, and and just off the top of my head, like thinking of like worldly examples that in uh, Israel and like Palestine, they are finding historical locations from the Bible, like as they excavate to build new buildings and stuff. Oh yeah. So, all the time. Yeah. All the time. And so they're, you know, it is true and it is there. It's just a lot of the time in that area, it's like several hundred feet down because they just built on top of the old cities. Yeah. I mean, they have regular spots that are just, um, what's the word for like, archaeological digs they're like partitioned off or whatever you can't use them because you can't build on them because they're just regularly digs and i feel like if i had known as like a teenager that biblical archaeology was a thing (laughs) like that would have been such a great job why did i not know about that i don't know i don't know they were i feel like for our generation, like marine biology was being pushed really hard. That's because you live by the ocean. Nobody was doing marine biology where I lived. All right. Maybe. 
But then I didn't actually, when I went to your parents' house in college. Yeah. So yeah. Greg and I met in college and um, sometimes I would go to his parents' house and stuff. Uh, your dad had a bunch of biblical archaeology magazines and that's when I started like kind of getting interested in it. He would like save them for me. Oh, well, that was nice of him. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you were getting biblical archaeology magazine this whole time and <laughs> I wasn't looking at him. I can tell you that I didn't, uh, this was news to me. Um, yeah, I'm trying to see. Okay. I can still hear myself. I was trying to see. <laughs> okay. So that's a long introduction, but this isn't a topic I get really excited about. I really like to share it with people. So we're going to spend three sessions on this. The first thing we're going to talk about are the original manuscripts of the Bible. Do we have them? And are they reliable? Then next time we'll talk about the canon of scripture. So why are there certain books that are in the Bible and books that are left out? And how is that whole thing decided upon? And then on the third um, podcast, we are going to talk about English translation philosophies. We have all these English translations. Many of them say different things. So how is that? How did that come to be? And are these like even, you know, good translations? All very useful information. I look forward to hearing it. Yeah. And I and, hope you do too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so Greg is, uh, Greg knows a lot of like all of this. I mean, but um, you're going to be a sounding board to make sure it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's not our normal format of podcast, but this is where God's leading us. This is what we're doing. Yep. Okay. So the Bible is 66 books written by about 40 authors over a period of about 2000 years. So that's what we're considering. And one thing that's really important to think of is that we don't have to have everything understood before we start to believe, of course, right? And we talked about this on right. a lot of our podcasts because we're faith-seeking understanding. We believe, but we don't believe with our brains tied behind our back. Like We believe and then seek to understand what God has revealed to us. Right. So um, today we're going to talk about manuscripts, which is basically like the original writings of the Bible. So, you know, the scroll of Isaiah that was written on, or if you're looking for the, for the New Testament, maybe the original letter to the Ephesians, right? Those were, right, right. so we we're wondering how did those get all the way to our English Bible and kind of what happened in between? And I feel like there's like this, people generally feel like there's this big void in between. How do we know, right? Like there could be so many things could have come up. And I've heard that. I've heard that from kids and from adults who just generally have a concern, um, which is which is fine because they just don't know a concern about, well, how, how do we even know that the Bible we have, which is so much, you know, we're, this is thousands of years later, uh, is even reliable. Well, I'm going to help you figure it out. So we're going to start with the Old Testament. So when we're talking about Old Testament manuscripts, originally, we're getting really, really early on, there was an oral tradition, right? So in the beginning, the Jewish people were not writing things down immediately. So some of the Old Testament books were likely written down right away, and others were certainly not. And that makes us in our current culture nervous, because if we don't write it down like it's gone. Or in fact, even if we do write something down, it can still be twisted. Yeah. Yeah. First, uh, yeah, for sure. But this is a completely different culture. So in the Jewish culture, 
the um, the reliability of God's word, maintaining the reliability of God's word was extremely important to the Jewish people. So you have to keep that in mind. Like, were they motivated to reliably transfer God's word? Absolutely. They were also an oral culture. So that's what they knew best. The capacity that they had to memorize huge chunks of passages, like we probably really would blow our minds. I mean, I've heard of things that like the ancient Greeks would memorize that would blow our minds because we just don't do that in our culture. But plenty of ancient oral cultures did, not just the Jewish culture, but many ancient cultures who had an oral tradition would had significant number of things memorized. Right. And, you know, literacy wasn't necessarily common. So like if you wrote it down, that would possibly put it out of reach of most people. So, um, yeah, so the oral tradition was the way that they made sure um, that it was passed on. I mean, Deuteronomy 6 talks about telling your kids about it, like, as you get up and as you lie down and as you walk along, you know, the streets and stuff. Like, so they were constantly reciting God's word to each other uh, to make sure that they and future generations would uh, confidently, accurately know the word of God. Right. So they also use memorization devices such as songs. So a lot of the things that we see in the Old Testament actually were songs. And of course, it's way easier to memorize something when it's to music. Um, Rhyme, a lot of things rhymed in the Hebrew language. And that, of course, is way easier to memorize if something is rhyming. And then a lot of times alphabetic order, you'll see that in some of the Psalms. You won't see it in the English translation, but it may, there may be a note or something in your Bible that this psalm is in like an acrostic in alphabetic order yep. in the Hebrew language. Right. So, of course, that is way easier to memorize. And I give an example of a book that we used to have when our kids were little. We got rid of it years ago, but it was an acrostic that rhymed. And so, and so I can actually still remember the pages of it today. You probably too, can too, Greg. So, it goes, nice. A is for apple that I like to ba- bite. B is for bear who I cuddle at night. C is for car that drives around town. D is for duckling covered in down. And the reason I can, I mean. E is for elephant with very big feet. F is for flowers that smell so sweet. So we haven't read that book in, (laughs) we haven't had that book in years. But because, well, I mean, we did read it a bunch of times, but because of the nature of it, it's like really easy to pull the next line. So this is just kind of an example of, um, of things that the Jewish culture did and things that are in scripture that you may not be able to recognize necessarily in the English, but the oral tradition was very strong. That's the point. Okay. So as far as the manuscripts, things that were written down, because of course all the old Testament was eventually written down. So as far as the number of manuscripts that we have today that are early manuscripts, we don't have a lot as in a big number of them for a couple of reasons. One, the Jewish scribes would ceremonially burn them if they were not absolutely perfect. This is out of respect for God's word. Go ahead. I just said, whoa. They, oh, you said, they, whoa. Yeah, they, whoa, they would burn him. Like, yeah. Yeah. So the Jewish people had a very high regard for God's word. And so if something was incorrectly copied, they would burn it. If it was worn out, they would burn it. So they didn't just leave extra manuscripts laying around. Um, and so in a lot of ways, like if anything's found, it's going to be the best version, right? Because they're not going to keep around 
anything yeah, based within on the those states. criteria, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, and then the second one, there was a very violent and nomadic history of the Jews. So they were like, you know, they were kidnapped and taken as slaves. They moved around to different places. They were wandering in the wilderness. They were doing all kinds of things and also attacked and all the time. So that's one of the reasons we don't have a large number of manuscripts from much of the Old Testament. However, the Old Testament text was standardized by the Masoretic Jews by the 6th century AD, and all the manuscripts that deviated from that text were eliminated. So um, the Hebrew manuscripts that existed are also supplemented. Like We do have early Hebrew manuscripts. And one of the ways that we can check, there's something called textual criticism that some people do, like some scholars do as their job, which is really cool. And it's one of the things that I really liked doing in seminary. I mean, I did it at like, you know, at the level that I was at, but I really enjoyed textual criticism. And so one of the things that they do is they examine the text to see what is different and what's the same and what's correct. And there's all these criteria. It's it's a full field of study um, to determine what is the best reading, what's the original reading. So it's not like people are just making guesses or they're trying to insert their own theology or their own philosophy. It's not like that at all. There's like very much a science to it. Um, So one of the things that they can use to check the manuscripts to see how good they are is the Dead Sea Scrolls were super helpful. Well, I think we're going to talk about that again. Um, the Septuagint was a third century um, BC Greek translation of the Old Testament, the entire Old Testament. Um, the Samaritan Pentateuch and the Targums were ancient paraphrases of the Old Testament. And then the Talmud, whereas the teaching and commentaries related to the Hebrew scriptures. So basically, if these things are contradicting, that's going to be a tip off, right? Right, right. Or it'll kind of like reinforce. We also do that with history too, which is super cool. You know, you can read like historical writings of the time to kind of like verify, oh, is that is that really true what Jesus did? Anyway, I get really excited about this stuff because it's just, it, it brings it all to light and it's really cool. Anyway, so the Septuagint, it's also called the LXX. Um, if you've ever heard of that, it's probably the most important for us to know. It, that the LXX is like, could sometimes be the notation in your Bible if it has like markings about the different translations or whatever. Is that what the LXX? Yeah. Yeah. It's also, yeah, it's the same thing. I mean, it's Septuagint or LXX, you know, 70, the number 70. Um, and that was in, in a translation of the entire old Testament into Greek. And the really cool thing was in the manuscripts we have for the old Testament are very reliable in 1947 the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, which was super cool because they provided a significant check on like what we already had at that time in 1947 because they discovered um, these old Hebrew scrolls that that were earlier than the earliest Masoretic Old Testament manuscripts by about a thousand years. It was a really huge find, the Dead Sea Scrolls. And they were really well preserved because of the location location of where they were. And so it was like, oh, we get to, we, now we have like something a thousand years earlier that we can check against Septuagint to see if this is even close. And in spite of the time span, the number of variant readings between the Dead Sea Scroll and the Masoretic text is really small. And most of the variations are in spelling and style. So we found through the Dead Sea Scrolls that 
what we had was actually very, very reliable and very close to that old manuscript. Isn't that cool? That's really cool. It's super cool. It's really, really cool. And then we also find things, I mean, they're, they're finding stuff all the time. Like there is, um, you know, archaeologists have found like jewelry that have like Old Testament, like Bible verses from Deuteronomy, like written on them. So even things like that, you can look at and kind of like verify and cross check. Right. Right. Yeah. Like you wouldn't want the Bible verse to be wrong on the jewelry that you're, you know, getting it inscribed on. Yeah. So it's really cool. So do we have a perfect Hebrew Old Testament based solely on the original manuscripts? There is not one right now. The Hebrew Old Old Testament is based on the LXX, the Septuagint. So it's actually translated from the Greek. And I know that sounds like it's not very reliable, but it's still extremely reliable. And scholars today are now putting together an Old Testament based on the original Hebrew manuscripts, um, book by book, but it takes a while. Those Dead Sea Scrolls and other sources. Yeah, not just the Dead Sea Scrolls, but yeah, other sources. But because the Septuagint has been proven to be so reliable for so long, that's not like... It's not like we're lacking right now. Right. We don't have to throw out the Septuagint because it was, it's, it's a good source because it, it's yeah. proven itself to be worthy of our source material and we don't need to completely redo it or disbelieve it because we found other sources because those other sources uh, validated the bulk of what the LXX had and what it, what was different were just how they spelled words based on the differences, uh, presumably between um, like how they spoke, you know, how Greek is spoken versus uh, Hebrew or whatever, or just, you know, their understanding of how to spell words. And um, stylistic, uh, I'm assuming that means like the syntax or something of the sentence, or just in the way that they would have said a certain thing. Yeah, so most of the variations were things that wouldn't change your the interpretation or like understanding gotcha. of the text. Gotcha. One thing that's really important to remember if you're still like wary of the Old Testament manuscripts, which really we have no need to be. This is super key. Jesus was reading from these scrolls and thought that they were reliable in the first century. So if Jesus thought that this was like a a bad version of Deuteronomy or something, he wouldn't have opened the scroll in the synagogue and read it as the word of God like he did. True. And he never said, this is bad. Um, This is not God's word. This who? (laughs) How do we get this translation? This is all off. I mean, Jesus read from these and cited them as God's word. He recited Old Testament all the time, um, many different, you know, from Deuteronomy to Psalms and Isaiah and all kinds of things. Um, so if they were good enough for Jesus, I mean, who are we to kind of like try to go through with a fine tooth comb and be like, I think this word is off. Um, so I would just caution us with that. Okay. So now we're going to move on to the new Testament manuscripts, which is really exciting for me because I don't know. I just like that the most. And, there's so much evidence for it. Um, and it's what I studied the most in seminary. 
So the New Testament is a completely watertight, open and shut case as far as reliability. Do we have the original manuscripts for for the New Testament? Is what we have in our New Testament what was originally written? Even secular biblical scholars, like people who are not Christians, do not deny the reliability of the New Testament manuscripts because they can't. So they won't pick a part, oh, this was not actually in the, the original. They will deny its truth. They'll deny its interpretation. But they don't deny that those were the words of scripture. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. That we have, we've got like the original writings and the source materials are like verified and uh, like so accurate across, you know, all the, all the available manuscripts that there is no, there's no room for variance or error or uh, argument about their validity and accuracy. Right, exactly. So that's not where, you know, somebody who is arguing against a Christian, as far as like what the Bible says, they wouldn't argue against the, um, whether they're close to the New Testament original manuscripts. Right. So let's, let's kind of break that down and look at evidence for how reliable it is. So first of all, we have a huge quantity of witnesses. So that's basically how many manuscripts we have to look at. Again, we're comparing them to each other. Um, You know, this is a textual criticism. We're looking at um, even different languages across centuries. And of course, there's criteria like oldest are usually most reliable and they have different ways of understanding which one was most likely the original, right? Right, right. Um, so we have a huge number of manuscripts, especially compared with other ancient literature. But just to give you an idea of how many Greek manuscripts we have today, we have over 5,700 Greek manuscripts. They are finding new ones, like, all the time. <laughs> Biblical archaeology. <laughs> yeah. Um, and some of these are just, like... I mean, some are like the Latin ones. Well, I'll, I'll keep going. So I get, I'm getting ahead of myself. So there's over 5,700 Greek manuscripts. There are over 10,000 Latin manuscripts and 400 Syriac manuscripts. Um, and so... What is Syriac? It's just an ancient language. Cool. Yeah. Cool. So all of these are evidence that you can kind of use to figure out what the original manuscript says. So, so do we have like one piece of paper that has the entire gospel of John written by John? No, but we have enough copies of the manuscripts that we can recreate the original very confidently. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So the um, evidence that we have so outweighs what we have for other um, ancient literature. So for example, um, like Plato, you know, people read Plato's writings and, um, you know, trust that what we have actually is what Plato wrote, but he wrote around 380 BC and the earliest copy of a Plato work that we have is from 8,900. So that's a time span of 1300 years. And how many of the manuscripts do we have? Uh, as of, um, when I looked up this information, which is several years ago, but less than 10 years ago, there were seven. So we've got seven manuscripts written 1300 years after Plato lived, but we still say this is what Plato said and attribute it to him. Hmm. 
So Aristotle has more writings. He was, um, wrote around 350 BC. The earliest copy is from AD 1100. So we've got 1400 years between the earliest copy of his work and when he originally wrote, but we have 49 of those. So that's helpful to be able to compare, right? Yeah. If you think about Homer's Iliad, Homer wrote the Iliad in 900 BC. The earliest copy we have of the Iliad is from 400 BC. So that was 500 years later. We have 643 copies of the Iliad. And the New Testament doesn't even compare. Because depending on, of course, which book you're talking about, it was written in the first century. The earliest copy that we have is from AD 130. So the time span is less than 100 years between the copy and when it was originally written. And then of course the number that we have is over 5,700 that's just in Greek. So it's not even comparable. And of course, you know, what the New Testament says is more important to have exact than Homer's Iliad. But I mean, just to show you, it's like blows it out of the water. It's really cool. So because we have such a great number of manuscripts, there isn't a word that's been left to our imagination. Does that make sense? So textual critics agree that we have over 100% of the original text. And I say like over 100% because um, we have evidence to be able to go back to create, recreate the original. Does that make sense? From the copies. And there are variations in the copies, of course, but we take it back. Yeah, we have, yeah. We have enough overlapping yeah manuscripts from different sources that all confirm the same writing that we can we we have more than 100% because it's like 100% from multiple sources in yeah. different different from different places in different languages that all are accurate uh on the same information Right. And of course, there are variations. So between all of these huge number of manuscripts, there are variations. But the really important thing to know is the quality of those variants. So the vast majority of variant readings don't significantly affect the meaning of the passage. So they would be smaller things like sometimes a word is duplicated when a scribe writes it or they skip a line when they're writing, right? Just like if we were copying by hand something, we might skip a line as we're following, like not on purpose. You just yeah, miss like, it as yeah, you're your, writing. Yeah, your eye just moved too far and you... Right. Or you might write a word twice in a row because you were, someone talked to you in the middle of it or something. But uh, you, it's really easy to figure out they didn't mean to write that word twice. It's just a variant in the passage. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And it's not going to affect the meaning. There are also spelling differences. Um and things like that. Then there are things we can see that maybe there are a couple words that um, scholars can tell were added for clarification, for example, but they weren't in the earlier manuscripts. And so that's kind of really easy to pull out, but it doesn't significantly affect the meaning of the passage. Does that make sense? Yes. Only 1% of the viable variants affect the meaning in any substantial way. And no major doctrine is affected by any viable variant. You're, we're not going to find an, a manuscript that says, oh, wait, Jesus didn't actually say he was a son of God or um, Peter wasn't actually a disciple. Anything like important at all is, is not, is not, um, is not going to be found. Does that make sense? Or yeah, none, not of the, found? none of the foundations of our faith will be shaken by 
the variants that there that exist because they're never uh it's never a core issue or core topic right yeah and i think um i mean we can we can look at this very like scientifically um which is good to do um because it is a science and like a practice that people do with historical documents and even like current documents um but i mean we also can remember the hand of God in this whole thing. I mean, the, that's almost getting on another topic, but just the entire like meta narrative that God has created over 2000 years with all these different writers and all these different locations to give us our Bible, which we have today that fits together so beautifully is like really astounding. (laughs) (laughs) It's almost as if we had a purpose in it. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not really like a surprise. It shouldn't be a surprise that like we have, that the Bible is still here today and um, that it is still true and that sort of thing. Because, yeah, it was important to God to reveal himself in his word too. So in summary for the New Testament manuscripts, do we have the complete New Testament as it originally was written? Yes, we do. And so your English Bible was translated from the Greek. um, From the Greek, from like as close to the original as we possibly have. So the new Testament is super, super reliable as far as its proximity to the original manuscripts. So that's all I have for today on that question. We're going to talk about the canon next time. So like how were the biblical books decided upon and why were some left out? Were any books left out? Do you think I explained that well, Greg, do you think there's any like lingering questions? Um, no, because there's two more podcasts about this. So hold, yeah. your, hold your questions until the end because a lot of the things you may be thinking lead into, okay, but why is King James versus, you know, the NIV versus whatever, your favorite translation here. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll get to that. Yeah, that'll so be in, the, th- that's in the third one. Yeah, so stay tuned. Um I really think most questions will be answered as we continue through um, all three podcasts. Pretty cool though, right? Very cool. I love sharing this because I feel like it's just a way to help people like be encouraged. Yeah. And it, it gives you real world like defense for the Bible. People, yeah. Cause people are like, Oh, you know, there's so many different translations and how do you know it's accurate or whatever? Mm-hmm. And we like, listen, Plato's only got like seven copies of his stuff and you learn that in school, Mm -hmm. you know, like that's still foundational stuff for a lot of people. I've got over 1,500, no, 50, was it 57? Mm -hmm. 5,700 very close Mm -hmm. manuscripts of this book that they all back up each other that what I'm reading is accurate. And also this third podcast I'm going to listen to in a couple of weeks. is going to tell me how to tell you that it doesn't matter that my translation has like slightly different wording. Does it? Words. Does it matter? Does it? There's some interesting stuff where we'll talk about it, about translations too. Cause yeah, we have heard cause people have questions and people don't, it, who you won't know unless somebody tells you, I will also put some resources in 
the show notes if you want to like dig further into this and you think it's super cool too and you want to read about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's really cool stuff. And it it's just helpful to know. It gives you confidence in God's word. Mm-hmm. And hopefully it will inspire you to spend more time in it. I know. What a blessing that we have it, right? Yeah. There's so much... So much, so much has gone into it over the years, um, and we get to hold it in our hands. And there's many people who don't have it in their language, which is a whole nother topic. Whenever I tell the kids that, which I tell them like regularly, I mean they know that. Yeah. But I'm always like, maybe one of you <laughs> <laughs> will translate the Bible into another language. Which is in its in and of itself a, an incredible ministry. The. You know. Hmm finding the languages it's not in and then determining the best way to translate it into those languages. Yes, but you're right. We're blessed. And so we should take advantage of it and use our Bible. God wants us to. Yes. He wants us to know him and know his word, write it on our heart and uh, be able to recall it when we need it in times of distress and times of joy. Yeah. So actually, you know, I was saying there was like this necklace that had Deuteronomy on it. I mean, that made, that had a quote from Deuteronomy on it. Mm-hmm. That may be true. Surely there is a necklace somewhere. But the one I'm actually talking about was actually from Numbers, which was like the Aaronic blessing. And so we're going to do that as our benediction. So it's just that right there. Okay. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Awesome. And we still get to hear those words today. Thanks for listening. We appreciate all of our listeners and are praying for you. If you'll take two minutes to rate and review our brand new podcast, we would be so grateful. For more information on today's episode, head to theologymeetsreality.com. Until next week, follow Christ, not culture.